Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for the third installment of our coverage of the first season of His Dark Materials. Today, we're on episode three, The Spies. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm a professor in Mississippi. And the place we're going to start in our discussion today is the place that we started in our text conversations (laughs) over the last couple of days, (laughs) which is to begin with a lengthy session of crying about moms. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) One of the things that I really loved about this episode, just kind of on an emotional level, in in really specific contrast to the previous episode is I think episode two did such a good job of putting us in Lyra's emotional space of like the walls closing in, um, you know, so claustrophobia and suspicion and all of these sort of little markers that she was getting piece by piece that she was in a dangerous situation until finally it all kind of like blows up. Um, and then just when you sort of think that she's, you know, gotten free of the danger she sort of snatched up again. So the sort of sense of like Lyra being alone and unprotected and, and that there are no safe adults for her to trust was, I think, really sharp in the last episode. And so, so it was just so like, it was so beautiful and lovely to move from that world to this world where she's finally like, she's sort of back among the only people that she really like the only people left that she really has any reason to trust at all you know like when when the egyptians come rescue her and it's tony like it's it's one of the faces that she recognizes and knows like okay this is somebody who won't hurt her like then you're sort of like okay and watching her sort of like develop and build trust over the course of the episode with Lord Fa and Farda Quorum, which we th- I think we can come back to was really great. But I think that the scenes that she had with Ma Costa, and there was a couple of them that that I like the one in the kitchen and then there's sort of the big kind of plot reveal talk. Like I mean every every time they were together was just was so great. But it but that watching that relationship evolve was just so just like it gave me so much emotionally because it was like God fucking Finally, like, finally, Lyra has an adult that she can genuinely and sincerely trust. And it's true that, like, you know, when she when she's getting frustrated and she's telling them, like, you can't keep me safe, actually. Like, you can't protect me. The Magisterium is super powerful. She's not going to stop. It's like she's acknowledging, like, like, yes, it is to some degree maybe overestimating their own capacity to guarantee that they can keep her safe but they are sincere that they're going to try like they mean it when they say it and that's new so you can kind of see from her perspective where she's like you know adults keep saying this shit to me and it keeps turning out to be bullshit you know and then sure enough here come the airships you know like once again somebody promised they could keep me safe and they didn't but but it's it's different this time you know like because finally she says like tell me the fucking truth and an adult tells her the truth and it gives her that context that she's been missing you know for like like the difference between Ma Costa withholding something from her versus Mrs. Coulter withholding something from her like it comes from a different place you know and i think th- it was i think it was important for Lyra she kind of begins to see a little bit more like a little bit more kind of mature perspective on the fact that like there are different kinds of reasons why adults don't tell you things, you know? So like from, from where she's at as a 12 year old, it's like, I keep asking these questions. 
that are really important because they all affect stuff that's happening to me and why I'm in danger and why I have to keep going on the run. And so basically, like, you give me one good reason why I'm safer with you, you know, <laughs> with this new batch of adults than I was with the last one or the right. one before that or the one before that, you know, so like it totally makes sense from her perspective, like why she feels like just drop me off at the nearest port and I will go a wandering to try to find Roger because that feels safer than anywhere else I could ever be. And then, you know, Fartacorum and Ma Costa and Lord Fa, I think even a little bit to a certain extent, but more the two of them trusting her with more information, you know, beginning to answer her questions and her sort of understanding like, okay, there, there actually have been reasons why some of this stuff like it actually was safer for her not to know it. You know, yeah. there are, there are practical reasons why it was safer for her not to know that those people were her parents. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, when I was watching, especially the sort of the first part of this episode when, you know, she first comes to the Egyptians and, you know, and, and like you said, is, is sort of, um, resistant is sort of like, oh, great. So you're going to like make me stay here now too. You know, like this isn't really, you can't really protect me either. One thing I was, I was thinking about is sort of that was striking is like, the kind of multiple ways in which the Egyptians, and like you said, particularly Fadakorum and Ma Costa, break these patterns that have so far in uh, Lyra's life kind of tended to um, structure the way that adults worked in her world. So, like the first, the first pattern is that. Like, we, if we sort of look at the, like, history of the various hands, you know, the various, like, custodians that Lyra has had, there's, but there's a sort of, like, long pattern of any time she is in trouble, you know, or, like, in danger or bringing danger to a place, her guardian, whoever it is, like, passes her off to someone else, you know? So, like, so, like, first it's Asriel who takes, you know, first he takes her and then he puts her in the nunnery or the, I guess the magisterium puts her in the nunnery and then she's not safe there. So Azriel takes her, but, you know, Azriel takes her from the nunnery and then gives her to the college, right? Like he doesn't take her and keep her. He just is like passes her off to the college and is like, okay, she'll be safe here. And then when she's not safe, you know, when, when she's not safe at the college anymore. And I think also equally to the master, I think not, not to say that, that like this is his primary motivation, but I think a piece of it is she's not safe at the college and the college isn't safe with her there. You know, that when she's become a kind of like, a, a, a well, you know, we see what happens in this episode, um, <laughs> to the college, right. you know, when now that Lyra's kind of become this important pawn in this game that she doesn't know that she's in. So when she isn't safe at, Jordan College, rather than doubling down and doing what they need to do to protect her, rather than sort of saying like, yeah, we're going to like, you know, link arms and fight, you know, and stand up for this girl. Once again, they sort of pass her on, you know, they sort of like look around and say like, okay, well, this isn't really safe anymore. So I'm going to find you somebody else who you're going to be safe with. So there's this kind of like pattern of when Lyra is in trouble or becomes trouble, you know, in some way becomes in danger in some way. The grownups in her life pass her off to someone else, you know, like rather than sort of standing down and being like, I'm going to defend you to the death or whatever, you know, they're just sort of like, uh, okay, we're going to send you off with this person who's like theoretically safer than, than me. That, you know, that's, that's the first pattern that, that the Egyptians break, which is, you know, when Lyra pushes back, when she 
And I think like she has, she does have a logical point to make and she's correct. But also to me, there's read a little bit of a sense of like the kind of like the way that a child who has been kind of neglected and, and let down by adults when, when they're offered care by like truly loving adults tend to kind of like fling back at them. Like, here's all the reasons you're actually going to abandon me. So just like mm-hmm. say it now, just like admit now. You know, yep. Um, she kind of flings back at the. I, it had a little bit of that feeling, that sort of like, well, I'm not really safe. You can't really protect me. You know, it's going to be dangerous. They're going to come for you, so I might as well just leave. There, I it, to me, there kind of felt a little bit of that sort of like when things get dangerous, the adults around me just like send me off. You know, and so the first pattern that that breaks there is that finally she's in a community that you know. When when the shit hits the fan and one of their children or I mean, like even Lyra's kind of a little bit their children, but even any child, when the shit hits the fan, they don't say like, well, yeah, it's going to be trouble. So, you know, we're going to find you someplace else so we don't have to deal with this. They're like, yeah, no, it's going to be a problem. They're going to come for you. It's, you know, it's dangerous. And we know that and we are willing to face that and we will stand our ground and we will protect you. So and this is like the first time that's happened in her life. So that that to me that felt that felt like one really like significant sort of break in the pattern of the ways that adults have failed her so far. And then the second one um, is like not as you know, that one, the first one's like a lifelong pattern. The second one, I think, is the more recent um, experience, which is that, you know, with Mrs. Coulter, where like. In that case, safety was being locked up, right? You know, the sort of like slow realization that Lyra goes through in the pre- in the last episode that, you know, that she's essentially in a gilded cage, right? Like, like it's beautiful and it's nice, but she's not allowed to leave. You know, like you, this woman is holding you here. She was really a prisoner. The second pattern is she's like, okay, like you grabbed me, you know, like I was helpless. They kidnapped me. You grabbed me. You brought me here. You say you're going to protect me. So, you know, and, and so there's that kind of moment where she's like, so now you're going to for like, basically like, you're going to hold me captive now, you know, like you, you now have custody of me and you're not going to let me go anywhere. Um, and I'm just supposed to, you're going to say you're going to protect me and I'm just supposed to like, whatever, like here I am, I'm stuck. And so the second pattern, you know, place where that, that pattern is broken is when Fodder Quorum says to her, like actually gives her agency. He gives her a choice in that moment. You know, he says like, yes, you are correct. It's dangerous. We can't guarantee, we can't actually promise you that you're going to be safe. We will try, but you're right. It's not a guarantee. And, but what he, you know, ultimately says to her is you're important to us and we want to protect you. And I hope that you decide to stay here with us. She, she finally has adults who are going to, to, put her safety first, who are willing to risk themselves to protect her, and adults who say, you do get to decide. We can't and don't want to control you. Like, we genuinely want to keep you safe. We're not here to control you or to hold you prisoner or to do anything against your will. But we ho- we think that we can keep you safe and we hope that you stay here and let us try. And like, that just says like, in you know, for her whole life up to this point, especially coming straight from Mrs. Coulter, that's just like such a huge thing. And I think like, so, so sort of like telling for who the Egyptians are and really what sort of sets them apart from all these other adults. And if you think about it, like, even from the magisterium, you know, because you have Mrs. Coulter, who's kind of like that one extreme end of the magisterium, that kind of like really authoritarian, very, very terrifying sort of power. 
But even like Jordan College is a piece of that power structure, right? They're, they're a piece of that establishment. And you can tell like Jordan College, like, again, he's, you know, they're not willing to risk the status quo for her, really. You know what I mean? So like you finally, it's, it, I think it's significant that in this world, the only place that she can go to find people who are first and foremost concerned with her safety and the safety of the children rather than their status quo or their power or whatever. And second, who are actually committed to personal autonomy and freedom are the Egyptians who are kind of like outside of this society in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Well, and I think even the the idea that that these people are willing to sort of put their money where their mouth is in terms of the things that they that they claim to want about keeping her safe, like that she gets to sort of witness that actually being true you know like when they're like when john fogg gets up to sort of rally everyone to go to the north and like the one of the parts that sort of made me really like teary is when when she gets up there to sort of to talk about like like i'm part of this too like i'm also a human being with agency in this conversation that you know that we're all having um and then at the end when they're like when they're like chanting when he sort of convinces them like yes they're gonna do it you know, it's like, we're doing this for us, we're doing this for our lost children, but we are also doing this for Lyra, you know, and she gets to hear that and witness it. And it also, the, I mean, the part that just, I think the biggest kind of gut punch of the episode um, is when we also see that even though, you know, Lyra doesn't witness it, that's also what Benjamin does. I mean, like, Mrs. Coulter is so terrifying in that, and that whole scene which we can come back to you know if we need to with the with the boys hunting through her stuff i mean it was so it was so fucking terrifying and oh my god um, i literally like my hands were like clutched to my chest oh my god oh (laughs) yeah it was so it was so oh it was so much um and you know and and she's so scary and and we've seen what happens with you know her her power to use her demon to attack other people's demons to cause them extraordinary pain you know and of course when she did it to lyra lyra gave it immediately i mean you know it's like it's a like you're you know literally being tortured and the fact that benjamin not only didn't cough it all up which is what everyone was kind of afraid was going to happen you know it sort of gets lampshaded by fire decorum he's like we don't want you to like you know don't go over there because if you get caught you know she'll torture you and you'll give it all away like you'll reveal everything that we know and you'll put Lyra in even more danger. And the fact that Benjamin chooses to sacrifice himself, you know, take his own life rather than allow himself to be tortured into a position where he will put Lyra or the other Egyptians in danger. You know, I mean, of course he's doing it for his people, but even the fact that they're all doing these things to keep like that they are, they are giving up, they're risking and in his case, sacrificing their own lives, their own freedom and safety for her is like, you know, this is really the first time we've seen somebody make a choice like that for Lyra, you know, and the fact that she's such a key part of why they're going north. And, you know, like, so I think it's just like you were saying, like, it's just, you know, people have been, adults have been saying these things to her over and over and over again. And these are the first people who are showing that they mean it. And you get so many, I, you know, they sort of build the suspense over the course of the episode where there's so many opportunities where you feel like at, at any given moment, one of the Egyptians could snap and rat her out to save their own skin. When the magisterium guards are showing everybody the photos or, 
or with Benjamin or like there's all of these different, you know, we, we know that the magisterium has spies in the room, all kinds of different places. You know, we see the creepy priest guy telling Boreal there's a rumor, you know, that the Egyptians have her. So you're like, oh my God, is one of these Egyptians actually double agent? Like there's all of these sort of different little indicators that possibly somebody at some point is going to either fail to protect Lyra or make a choice to save themselves by turning her in. And nobody does. Yeah. You know, over and over and over and over and over again, they all have moments where it's like, you can make your whole life a lot easier by handing this kid over. And they're like, what kid? We have no idea who she is. We don't know what you're talking about. You know? And like, and the whole community is in on it together. Just, just for sort of on an emotional level and on a story level, just sort of knowing that for, for the moment, you know, she is as safe as it is possible for anybody to make her, you know, and, and that she's not alone anymore. Regardless of the fact that things are going to continue to be dangerous, she's at the very least not in that danger by herself. And like by the end of the episode that she sort of has come to, a realization and an understanding of that, you know, she's sort of like, okay, I am ready to start gradually letting some people in, you know, and that's a huge emotional transformation for her. And I I just wanted to say, um, if you have listened to us over the years, if you were, if you listened to us, when we're podcasting about the hundred, we've talked a lot about suicide and depictions of suicide in media and television. And this is something that's like very you know, that that's like very close to me personally. My father-in-law committed suicide about 12 years ago. Um, and I suffer from depression and I've been suicidal. Um, and so it's like, it's like touched my life in a lot of ways. And, um, and so we've had a lot of conversations about like ways to depict suicide that are responsible and ways that are not responsible, you know, and what kinds of, um, what kinds of, of sort of considerations um, are necessary for it? You know, like what, what makes it necessary to a story as opposed to gratuitous? How do you depict it in a way that is not sort of like traumatic? Because like, you know, like it, we, again, like we've had conversation, we've, we've had this conversation on the podcast. There've been times, you know, when, when there were depictions of suicidality or actual suicide that like were very sort of triggering. And like one thing that I, you know, that is striking to me about this episode. So there is an, there is an actual suicide, you know, um, J- Benjamin jumps to his death. But there's also that little moment just before that or a few scenes before that when for a second it looks like Mrs. Coulter yes. is going to jump, right? You know, that's sort of like we see her like standing outside uh, and then you realize she's standing on the ledge, you know, and then she almost starts to fall and then she catches herself, you know, and it kind of pulls back and, and she's, she's drinking and it seems like she's, you know, she wasn't necessarily about to jump, but then she's walking along the ledge, right? She's, she's kind of like playing with the idea. So there is this kind of sense of like that she's kind of considering this on some level. I was thinking about this because in both of those cases, I think those are moments where I thought that the issue of suicide or the the kind of like suicidal ideation of Mrs. Coulter and the actual suicide of Benjamin um, was handled really well and really responsibly um, and and effectively. And I think for a couple of different reasons, like I think for for Benjamin, I think it's it's 
you know, and we talked about this when we've talked about suicide in the past that, um, you know, one difficulty with it is sort of understanding like the meaning of, you know, that, that what is, what is, does the death have meaning or is it just kind of like a sort of moment of despair or whatever? Um, and for, for Benjamin, I think the thing that makes it, I don't know. I think the thing that makes it work for me is like kind of all the things you were saying. And it's a combination of that. It's very clear that Benjamin entirely has agency in that moment, right? Like mm-hmm. he is, mm-hmm. he is fully and consciously making that choice for himself. There is no sense of like coercion or, um, or anything like that. And also that he accepts it in that moment. And then the other thing I think is like you said that it's also very clear, like, he knows why he's making the choice and he's making the choice because for exactly the reasons you were saying, which is basically like he's, he sort of decided, you know, I'm going to sacrifice myself while I have this chance, you know, especially having just experienced that torture. He's going to sacrifice myself in this moment while I have a chance because that truly is, you know, really the best outcome for his people to protect them and then for himself. And so like, it was like painful and devastating. And I cried and like, honestly, okay, like seeing when he fell, and then <gasps> seeing his demon. Oh, my God. Disintegrate yeah. into dust. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was somehow the most fucking devastating. You mm-hmm. know, like, first of all, I'm glad we didn't see they didn't, you know, like show us the body or, right, the, or right. anything like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm yeah. glad that like, the way that we knew he was dead was like through the demon. But like, I had no idea that some CGI sort of like golden dust, you know, mm-hmm. of his of his hawk demon disappearing could be like so emotionally devastating. You know, I think I actually yeah. said out loud, oh, like, yeah. no, you know, I mean, it was just like heartbreaking, but it was heartbreaking, but not traumatic. Right. You know, and I think I think it was because because they did the work to establish that, yes, you know, in this moment, this sacrifice is a logical and um, meaningful and effective choice, right? Like this is genuinely something that will that will protect the people he loves, and he is entirely sort of like you know willing to make that sacrifice, you know? Yeah. So, so it doesn't, and he isn't robbed of that by like it turning out that like oh it didn't actually change anything anyway. You know what I mean? Like right. Like that sacrifice is allowed to have meaning. It's allowed to 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 make the impact that he wanted it to make. Yeah. And that it ends up and then that we see like we get to live in the urgency of the emotional response to it from yes. the people who love him. You know, what I mean, the yes. the guilt of leaving him behind is going to continue to haunt Tony, even though Tony didn't really do anything wrong, but he you can have feel done anything. Yeah. No, and he he saved himself. He got the information back to the Egyptians with the list of names proving that they have Billy and Roger. He he saw, you know, some of the others so like like important information was transmitted and which means it was better in the long run. You know, it serves our goals more for one of them to have made it home than neither of them to have made it home, especially for his mother, who's already lost one kid. But yet also, because he's a good person, the impact that it's going to have on him feeling like he, you know, like he left a friend behind, that he, you know, went along to, you know, because it was a two-person job and he abandoned somebody that he cared about. You know, like like the thing that we've talked about before when we talked about suicide is the sort of this idea that like if it's presented like it's just 
sort of the end of that character's story. We're sort of closing the book on this person because they're dead now. And we don't live at all in the emotional fallout from that. Like, that's the sort of, that's the irresponsible storytelling. But this was very much like, okay, so now... You know, and this is true, I think, in, in some ways of any character death, but particularly ones like this where you have to be sort of so careful, like, you know, what is this adding to the story? It has to become about, like, is this opening up more story territory than it is closing off? And it clearly is. Like, it does, you know, it's it's going to continue to be a thing that shapes Tony. And it also is the, you know, Benjamin's death is the trigger for our first real plot movement on Lyra and the alethiometer, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, and that's right. Yeah. So, it, so it's like, it's a, it's a massive thing for her, you know, her worry over what's happened to the boys is what prompts her to sort of, to give the alethiometer another try and begin to try to sort of figure it out, you know? So, so he, yeah. So like he has, you know, his death has just even just in this episode, huge resonance and opens up a couple of really significant storylines. And also, I think the thing that was really fascinating about that moment is that it was a huge, shocking, emotional moment for Mrs. Coulter, which yeah. was really fascinating. You know, she yeah. was she was so interesting this episode. I, you know, I think one of the things we talked about last time was like, what, where are the What's the line between like overly sort of humanizing a villain character to a degree that it feels like the storyline is kind of letting them off the hook for their monstrous actions versus keeping them so, you know, evil for the sake of evil that they don't feel like a real person. And I think they're threading the needle really nicely with Mrs. Coulter, especially in this episode where we got so many new pieces of information about kind of how she became who she became. And then they were juxtaposed with her sort of continuing to do monstrous and horrifying things. So it doesn't make us, it doesn't change how we see her that we now know the way that she was shaped and traumatized by like, you know, giving up a child and these two men that she loved fighting over her and her husband being killed and, and all of the sort of like social stigma and shame and punishment that was like attached to her and how she must have had to sort of fucking like claw her way back up from the bottom to the, yeah. achieve the power that she's had. So we know all of that and it helps sort of flesh her out more and you know and then we see like you were saying like we see how emotionally fucked up she is over you know having lyra so close and losing her again the thing i thought was really powerful about that um sort of that near suicide moment was it's sort of before she gets the spy flies out it looks like she's, you know, like she's standing on the ledge and she's taking Lyra's dress out there with her. And it looks like she's having a sort of like, like a real a kind of dark night of the soul yeah. about Lyra. And, and that it's just that, that, she, that it's sort of just a purely a moment about those emotions and that loss, you know, she's sort of out there kind of like flirting with. You know, do I want to end it or do I not? With a memento of her daughter's right there. Yeah. So it's and, all and very kind now, of dark. Knowing now the backstory that she was forced to give up Lyra as a baby, if you think about mm-hmm. sort of like having her baby ripped away from her and then getting her back briefly and then losing her again. You know, I think right. what's so fascinating about Mrs. Coulter as a character is that I think you really can't disentangle 
the part of that that is a, a truly a dark night of the soul of, you know, a mother who is re-experiencing the trauma, you know, of losing her daughter a second time. And the Mrs. Coulter for whom that daughter is, uh, a, you know, a sort of pawn in a power game that she's in danger of losing and is desperate, desperate to do anything to claw back and win. And, right. and you know, those two things I think are like, there, there's just like, there's no way to pull those apart in her psyche. They are like kind yeah. of one in the same thing. And I think that's fascinating. And it's, you know, it's really interesting that we kind of have like, there's a kind of like, almost like rhyming between that scene with Mrs. Coulter and then the fact that Tony's death, that he, that he chooses to fall to his death. You know, I have this moment of almost like of Mrs. Coulter flirting with self-annihilation, flirting with sort of falling off of that roof, you know, like not quite wanting, not willing quite to do it consciously or deliberately, but, you know, drinking whiskey and walking along the edge is a is a moment of sort of like, well, it, whoops, you know, like it might accidentally happen. But it, so I think that like that rhyming kind of action there is so fascinating because it's like the, the, the sort of rhyme emphasizes the, the contrast, right? Where it's sort of like, Tony, it's like a very deliberate action that he has chosen and that he accepts versus a kind of like playing along an edge and almost sort of like, I can do it without doing it sort of, you know, moment for Mrs. Coulter. And then there's the kind of, you know, there's the motive where for Tony, it's very, his his decision to fall to his death is completely altruistic. It does not, you know, like dying serves other people and that's why he's doing it. Whereas for Mrs. Coulter, I think if she were, she's flirting with it and it's an entirely, you know, it's about her escaping herself, right? Like escaping the shame um, of being seen by the magisterium at, as having failed, the shame of falling from power, um, and then also I'm, you know, like I think again, like I said, like you can't be kind of separated from any of this, the pain of kind of like having these mother feelings like dredged up out of the deep and then ripped away again, you know, but it, but for her, she's flirting with it because like, because she's flirting with the, the, with an escape, right? Like this would be, this would be a way to just like get out of this mess, right? To not have to deal with it. But it's entirely about her versus Tony where it's like entirely about um, other people. So I think it's really, really interesting to kind of like, and then, you know, even, even with the sort of like Lyra's stuff laid out where like she's out there and it has to do with the children and Tony does what he does because of the children, right? Like it's all about the children getting out there and saving them. And for Mrs. Coulter, it's like, you know, it's about like protecting Lyra. Um, and, and for Mrs. Coulter, you know, it's like, it's still, it's also all about Lyra, but like finding her in order to whatever, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, well, that <laughs> I don't was even know what... she knows anymore what she's going to do with Lyra. <laughs> well, and that's what was so, what was so like, I think such a, powerful moment in that in that balcony scene was it's like you know it it looks sort of as the the beginning and sort of the outset of that scene it looks like she's sort of she's gone out there with Lyra's dress kind of just to like to sort of like emotionally self-flagellate a little bit yeah, like sort yeah, of yeah, wallow yeah. in her misery and then when you realize that like the dress is there for sort of like bloodhound reasons yeah yeah, yeah. You know, like the, the spy flies have to like sniff at it so they can go find her it's sort of you know it's like 
it's like even you know like you were saying like it's the emotions are both real and not real or or they're both real and beside the point you know like she she is both sincerely having like the dress is both a memento of the daughter that she lost and also a calculated power tool and and nothing is what it looks like with her you know and uh and that was something that i thought was really was really interesting to sort of the framing of that scene as like you know we we start on her you know like in her in her pajamas drunk off of her ass standing on the ledge next to lyra's dress was sort of like if you if you were only looking at that shot out of context you'd be like okay well i know exactly what's happening here and then she opens the box and you realize like nope she's and i think there's a difference between her and benjamin you know she's sort of flirting with this idea of of jumping kind of out of like out of the same sort of spirit of like reckless who gives a fuck that we've seen sort of pop up in her and other circuit like it's sort of like her her sort of bullheadedness in the face of danger you know like like what would happen if i'm you know like that she's sort of she's just past caring um but that what what pulls her back from from the brink is that in the end power is still the most important thing to her you know is and and i think that you know that for for benjamin it's not you know for benjamin loyalty is the most important thing like the the you know keeping his people safe and i think that you know it's it's like you were saying like it's for him it's about everybody else and for her it's about herself but it's also like she's still not out of like she hasn't played every card up her sleeve yet mhm yeah I think it's it's important that it's like it happens that you know and she's she's drunk and having this sort of terrible and we also see it too like before the the drunk scene you know we see her ripping the bedroom apart you know like we're seeing these sort of these moments of intense extreme emotion that are then tamped down and like nope back to the plan back to the plan you know uh, yeah, and so just that sort of the the disconnect between the things that she lets herself feel and the way that she has to sort of box those feelings up and feel like she has sort of you know to soldier on like you'd you know you'd like her better if she was just like if she was just out there drunk and depressed you know holding her daughter's dress and just kind of like having sad mom feels you're like yeah that's a human reaction and the fact that it's like. That's half of it, but also I'm going to break the law with these apparently super dangerous and highly illegal cursed, you know, <laughs> ste- steampunk surveillance bugs, you know, yeah. like, and that, and that all along was why I came out here with this. Like, it's just a, it's such a, it's just like a perfect Mrs. Coulter moment. The other fascinating thing I thought about that, that scene was that she had closed her demon inside. Yeah. So she was out there like all alone. She wouldn't even let her demon out there. The monkey was really interesting in this episode. Yeah. I, I thought like, cause that like him, him watching from the window and the sort of cuts back to his, his face as she was jumping, like it, it created, like it, it was, it was even more sort of of a reinforcer of that distance where it was like, is she capable of doing things that he doesn't know she's about to do? You know, like his, or is he's he out seen, there because he does know, and he would try to stop, and her he would try and, to stop her, yeah. yeah. And so she's like using the, you know, the power that she has to be separate from him. And then also there was that, like the when when Benjamin's demon 
turned into dust and the monkey was kind of like sort of like pawing it like the monkey was so sort of like confused and almost seems like a little sad like it was it was a it it, it felt like an, another sort of reminder of the fact that like of the ways in which she has this demon so kind of beaten into submission and terrorized and kind of treats it like you know like a like a slave essentially to her demands and all of its autonomy and voice and whatever has been taken out of it, that these sort of little moments of like, I don't, not humanity is the wrong word, but just like, like little moments where you're just sort of like the monkey side of Mrs. Coulter is, does not feel like the side that is evil, you know, like it, it is, it's the piece of her that, has been sort of, you know, beaten into submission and it's the side of her that's human. It's the Mrs. Coulter of her that is totally in the driver's seat and making all of the decisions and the monkey is sort of forced to go along with it. But every once in a while, there's these sort of little moments where you're just kind of like, you know, I wonder who you'd be if this piece of you had more agency, you know, like if, if, if there was a back and forth, where you actually listened to your demon the way that, you know, the way that Pan and Lyra do. Cause Pan also had some really interesting moments in contrast too. you know, Pan sort of articulating, like he never trusted Mrs. Coulter, which means there was a part of Lyra all along that kind of always knew, you know, like, like always knew something here is wrong. And like, I'm not ready to admit it. Like, I don't, w- I don't want that to be true. I want to believe that this is all, you know, real. But that, you know, Pan as kind of the gut instinct is like Ma Costa and Mrs. Coulter are different. They, maybe they're saying the same words about, you know, I'll take care of you. You're safe here. You can trust me. But they're not the same person. You know? Yeah. It was so interesting that we got, you know, after after a sort of discussion about demons last week and, and Mrs. Coulter and the kind of like weird relationship with her demon that Fodder uh, uh, Coram actually had that little conversation with Lyra about demons. Yeah. Like I never, you know, I was always, I never understood her monkey demon. You know, I was, was sort of puzzled by that. And it's like, you too, huh? Good to know. But also like with the backstory, it does make sense. Like if her demons settled, you know, when she was a young adult before she met Asriel, before this kind of like cataclysmic series of events that resulted in having Lyra and losing Lyra that like seemed to be the sort of the, like those seem to be the things that sort of curdled her, you mm-hmm. know, um, you can imagine her as a young woman, you know, with like, with those parts of her that she's now kind of like cut off and killed as, as vibrant. You can imagine her as somebody who was not so estranged from that demon when she was younger. And so it's, in, you know, it's sort of like fascinating that, that she's a character where it's like, this is something that has something happened to her that sort of like developed a relationship that was very different. But yeah, that demon, epi- that demon conversation was so, so interesting. I think I remember from the book, you know, there was a kind of similar conversation that happened where, or, or at least like a moment where Lyra said that she never wanted Pan to settle. Like she always wanted yeah. him to have the ability to change, which, you know, for Lyra, especially Lyra this, in this moment makes a lot of sense. You know, this kind of sense of like not wanting to be pinned down, to be confined, to be defined. But, you know, the, what struck me as really kind of like interesting and and like actually kind of like foreshadowing was when Father Cor- Father Coram said, um, you know, he says something about like, you know, when you, when you encounter someone who's, who has a demon, 
that doesn't seem to represent who they are, you know, or where the demon settles as something, you know, she says something like, what happens if he settles as, as something that, you know, that I don't like? And he says, well, that usually means that there's something, you know, somebody's very like sort of discontented with themselves. Um, there's something kind of like, there's something sort of like deeply, some way that that person is at odds or unwilling to accept something about themselves. And, you know, knowing that like a big part of the, the sort of sequel novel, um, I think it's called The Secret Commonwealth, which is one where it sort of takes place when Lyra's in her early, early 20s. Like a big part of that involves Lyra being at odds with Pan. It sort of felt like, ooh, that's a little like, like slightly sort of, you know, like something that I wouldn't have, that I might have just sort of brushed off or as I thought has, would be, was just about, you know, like Mrs. Coulter or something where now I'm like, oh, nope, this is sort of like flagging. Like this is, this is a, a challenge that Lyra herself is going to face someday. So, um, should we talk about um, uh, more about Lyra's sort of character arc over the course of this episode? Because I think it's like yeah. so fascinating, you know, the way I think because like so much has obviously like so much has happened to Lyra over the course of the first two episodes. But I think this is really the first episode of the series so far that really kind of like centers on a, a very a big and significant change or sort of like um arc for for Lyra's character where something huge sort of like not just like happens to her she learns more information but like something in her kind of i think changes yeah you know from from where she is at the beginning of the episode you know like literally tied up you know in in the gobbler's nets in the back of that truck to where she is at the end you know standing on the prow of this ship that's like steaming you know full speed ahead towards the north the one place that she's always wanted to go you know and and from being like completely alone and a captive to now having this whole community and kind of you know army you know like alongside her it was like it was sort of the i mean it's a remarkable amount of change in you know in in one hour and i think for me it sort of you know circles back to kind of what we're talking about at the beginning which is like the evolution of her understanding of how she exists in relation to grown-ups and and i think that comes from finally meeting grown-ups who don't want to force her to kind of sand down all of her hard edges you know like i one of the things i really sort of little moments that i really liked between her and farter quorum that i think was such a huge i think kind of eye-opener for her is when she says like well i'd like my demon to be a mole because then you know then he and i can just burrow down into the ground and like hide from all you fucking grown-ups <laughs> and farter quorum is like yeah like he thinks it's like he thinks it's hilarious and he's and then his practical response is like well you know, that wouldn't do any good right now as we are on a river, you know, but he's not like, <laughs> you know, like he's, he's not, like he's not offended by it. And he's not even surprised by it, really. You know, he's just sort of like, you know, yeah, kid, okay, you know, and, but takes it seriously. And then they sort of, it kind of leads into this sort of conversation about demons and settling and things like that. But I think, you know, I, what I liked about it was it felt like in that moment, you know, she's telling an adult, like, here's what I think of you guys. Here's what I think of adults right now. Here's where I'm at as a kid with, you know, your entire <laughs> generation. You know, like, I think all of you are nothing but trouble, you know? And and his response is basically like, yeah, like, based on 
what you've been through, like, that's fair. Like, he's not, he doesn't take it personally. He's not offended by it. It was really interesting sort of to watch her, you know, like, she's kind of doing that kid thing of, like, I'm testing the boundaries with you. And and that's the kind of comment that, like, would get her, you know, like, Azrael would smack her down for it, or the professors would roll their eyes and be like, Lyra, you know, that's like, you know, every other adult in her life would would be like, oh, I see what you're doing. Like, you're just sort of being a butthead, you know, and, and she, and there'd be consequences for talking to an adult like that. You know, somebody would try to change her. Somebody would try to be like, Lyra, behave yourself. You know, that's not how it works. And, and I think what she finds among the Egyptians are people who, who see her for the full complexity of who she is and just accept that about her, yeah. you know, and, and the also other, the other, her experiences, you know, who look at her and say like, right. Yeah. Given what you've gone through, that makes sense. You know, yeah, the things <laughs> that have happened to you actually happened to you, you know, and yeah, the other, yeah, yeah. the other moment I think, so I think that for me, because then you sort of see after that, after he sort of like receives that and kind of tosses it back to her, she warms up, she's smiling. Like that's a real, I think that's kind of the sea change in her relationship with Fartacorum that leads her to do something kind of unprecedented for her later, which is to present him unprompted with the alethiometer and kind of loop him in on that. And the one, and the moment I think the, you know, the real transformational moment between her and Ma Costa when, is when they're making dinner. And first that, you know, that she's sort of like, okay, like you're just, you're trying to like include me. You're like, come help me in the kitchen, Lyra. And I'm like, you know, like that she's, she's like, okay, fine. You know, um, and that the, the, the first thing that happens is that Ma Costa basically says like, you know, your perceptions of what, you know, what Egyptian moms do all day in the kitchen is completely inaccurate, you know, and, and teach her that, like the little thing with the sparks, you know, um, gives her a way to defend herself, you know, sort of gives her a new tool. Um, and also t- is the first person to tell her like who you are is totally up to you. You know, like, like every adult is trying to tell you who to be, you know, the professors are trying to do it. Azrael is trying to do it. Mrs. Coulter was really, really trying to do it. You know, everyone is trying to mold Lyra into their perception of what Lyra is supposed to be, what kind of adult they want her to be, you know, the burdens that are being placed on her, the prophetic grand plan that she's part of, like all of these sort of exterior pressures. And Ma Casa is the first person who really looks her in the eye and says, like, who you are is totally up to you. You know, like, you can be whoever you want to be. Like, you can, you know, if what you want to be is Egyptian, fine. If what you want to be is something else, fine. But, like, you, you know, everything that you have, everything that you need, you already have inside you. You just kind of have to figure it out. I think a big part of what happens in this episode is finding adults who who genuinely and sincerely trust Lyra and are willing to advocate for her is, I think, a piece of her finding enough trust in herself that I think is what allows the the alethiometer to work finally. You know, yeah. like, I think that mm-hmm. she's got to, like, like, for Ma Casa to say, like, your inner voice telling you what you want is sufficient allows Lyra to begin to believe that. And then the fact that 
when she goes to Vardacorum and says, here's what the alethiometer told me, instead of being like, no, dumb kid, it takes 40 years of book learning, you know, <laughs> like you, like you're, you know, it's a fluke, you're full of shit, for him to be like, okay, I see what you're doing, I see what you're capable of, I'm putting my trust in your abilities, you know. Um, like, I think that that empowers her to feel like, you know, she's being seen really for the first time and i think that that is a huge seismic shift because you know like she's like she's a 12 year old she's acting out to be seen like that's what kids do you know like up until this point a lot of the sort of rebellious or bratty or you know pain in the ass or sort of goofball wacko things that she does are like you know, trying to, like, get somebody's attention, trying to sort of, like, seem braver and tougher than she is, you know, trying to sort of, like, be Lord Asriel-ish enough that Asriel will take her seriously, you know, like, she wants to sort of create this mental picture of herself as an adventurer, so he'll come and take her on adventures, you know, so she's had to, like, work so hard to try to get him and anyone else in her life to, like, really, like, really look at her and see her, and these people do, you know, and she doesn't have to fight for it or beg them to do it. They just do it because that's like who they are to each other and to everybody else that they come in contact with. And she's one of them now. And I think another piece of it is that, you know, another thing that happens to Lyra in this episode, kind of both because she's with Egyptians and then also as an effect of her slowly becoming willing to be a part of to be to be one of them, you know, to kind of be a part of this community of family, um, is that for the first time, she is someone who is important because she has something to contribute. She's important for herself and not important as not either like at Jordan College, where she was kind of like not important at all. You know, she was just sort of like, a pain in everyone's butt, you know, and she kind of knew it. Like, like they, they, like they cared about her fine, but like she was not of any like particular significance. Um, or to Mrs. Coulter, to whom she's a, a tool, right? Like she's a she's a pawn of like she's important in the ways that she can be manipulated or used. And I think like on the one hand, you kind of have, I think over this course of the episode, you have sort of like you move from Lyra being really sort of like resistant to being a part of, you know, among the Egyptians um, to being taken in by them. You know, she kind of like pushes back. They say, we want to take you in. And she's like, well, you're going to abandon me or, you know, or you're going to hold me prisoner. Like, you're not really taking me in, right? Like one way or another, you're not really kind of like making me a part of this. And I think very slowly kind of over the course of the episode, and in particular in her her um, interactions with Father Coram and Ma Costa, I think through the ways that they kind of over and over again put their money where their mouth is, you know, like Father Coram telling her she could choose to go, but he hoped that she would stay, you know, kind of like really like seeing her, you know, like like talking to her, actually listening to her, taking her seriously, you know, Ma Costa, same thing. But then also the kind of like when the magisterium comes – they do what they said they would do. They hide her, you know, like even at great risk and great cost, you know, like in, in, in like a tremendous amount, like they could have found her and everything would have been fucked. You know, they like, they said they would put it on the line to protect her and they did. So that like sort of proves that they're honest there. And then I think with Miss, with Ma Costa and that scene, you know, when 
when Lyra confronts her, when she's kind of like storming away and Makas is saying like, stay, 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 you know, like I promise we'll protect you. And she's like, you're just saying everybody says that you're saying the same shit everybody says, but like, I know you're not telling me everything, you know, so like you can say the same shit everybody says, but you're doing the same shit that everybody does, which is just lie to me, you know, and like not tell me like, why are you doing this? You're acting like I don't need to understand it. When Makasa is finally like, Yes, you're correct. You know, like I'm listening to you as a person. I am recognizing that, you know, that although it's like difficult and inconvenient and whatever, like you're right that you are owed the truth and actually tells through the truth. And it winds up being, I think, a kind of moment um, of simultaneously sort of like she comes to really trust Makasta in that moment because Makasta told her the truth, because she sort of said like, yes, you're right. People and everybody like maybe, you know, like, you know, like, uh, Lord Fa might not want me to do this, but I'm going to do it because you're right. You know, you do, you do have a right to know. So like the fact that she told her the truth and then the content of it, you know, like that the story kind of like clarifies, you know, allows, um, Lyra to get some picture of like the emotional truth behind everyone's motives, you know, both her mother, you know, her actual mother, Mrs. Coulter sort of understanding like some of why she does, but then also like Ma Costa kind of admitting like, Part of the reason why I'm doing what I was doing was like, yeah, like when you were a tiny baby, you know, there was a there was a day when you were given to me and I held you and I protected you and I would have laid down my life to protect you and I failed you then. And, you know, and so like, yeah, so like, you know, for her to kind of like lay it on the line and say like, yes, you know, you're right. This isn't just like out of the goodness of our hearts or whatever, you know, like this is personal for me and I have this connection to you. I think for, for Lyra, it's a sort of combination of like, that makes an emotional truth. It gives a reason for why she's doing what she's doing. And then also obviously opens up the kind of like, oh my God, there's a woman here, a person who just, who like loves me just because, or cares about me just because she cares about me just because I was a child who deserved to be nurtured and cared for. And she just wants me to be safe because she wants me to be safe. And I'm going to cry again. I'm not Lyra. Me, Erin, is going to cry again. <laughs> Just like I cried walking, watching it last night because, like, Lyra has been so starved. You know, like, that moment you just see, like, she's never in her life had someone who just, like, loves her because they love her. You know, who looked at her as a baby and was like, this tiny human is is so beautiful and perfect and worthy of protection and love. And I'm going to, like, I'm just going to... I'm just going to love her and protect her because like she deserves it and she doesn't have to earn it. You know what I mean? Like, Oh God, I'm, I'm seriously going to cry. Like I have so many oh. feels about it. Like, you know, yeah. like it's like, like it's such a beautiful moment of, of that kind of like love that, that Lyra never got, got. And I think didn't ever think about and, and didn't think that she needed and was maybe a little bit afraid of, and like certainly is never going to get for Mrs. Coulter because Mrs. Coulter's too fucked up to like, you know, like she, 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 I think, you know, if she has those sort of feelings, she feels, you know, she like treats them like the enemy. So to her, for her to be able to have this moment of sort of like have Ma Costa kind of, you know, reach out and say like, 
look, I'm going to lay it on the line, you know, like I held you as your baby and I want to protect, you know, I want to hold you now. I want to protect you now. And for Lyra to be able to sort of say like, yes, okay, I want that too. You know, I accept that. That's like such a huge moment for Lyra. Yeah. And like every child should have that. Not every child gets it, but every child deserves it. And like the way, like that moment at the end where they're standing on the top of the ship and Makasa just like, kind of like wraps her arms around her and Lyra just like lets her like just sort of like settles into it and it's just they're having this just like tender little intimate moment and you sort of know you know like of course like it's not gonna last this show is full of you know drama there's the bears next week like things are gonna happen you know like like they're in a sort of little moment of kind of stillness that you know is sort of fleeting but in that moment, you know, like Lyra, Lyra is a, allowing herself to be loved. Yes, you know? exactly. And, exactly. and that is like, that's a huge transformative thing for her. And, you know, and, and the contrast of that, like between that and her, when she first, you know, is, is sort of brought in to Fartacorum and Lord Fawn, you know, and she's basically like tells them like, the only thing I trust is like me and Pan out on the streets. Like I, that's, that's the only way that this works. I don't feel safe anywhere else. It's for your benefit as much as it is for mine. But like, I, like that's, you know, like if you're going to let me pick, that's what I want. You know, I just, just like drop me off the side of this ship and let me just go for it on my own, you know? And like, and I think like you said, like it's, that is part, it's partly because that's all she knows. Um, and it's partly because she is doing, you know, that extremely human and relatable thing of like, I'm going to reject you before you reject me because I cannot take another rejection. So I'm going to just never let anybody get close enough to hurt me, you know, which is, I think, sort of like a, like a lifelong pattern that's really exacerbated pretty rapidly between the sort of like, you know, multiple layers of you know, rejection by Azrael and Mrs. Coulter and realizing like they're both her parents, which makes that like, which makes it all feel, you know, even sort of more like more brutal. But I think the fact that it ends with her forming a relationship with an adult woman, which I think is also really important, who, who is offering her love and kindness and empathy and acceptance and as much safety as it's possible for a person to offer her in, you know, sort of given the practical constraints of the world that they live in, but like a commitment to do her best to keep her safe, you know, and and the fact that Lyra lets it happen, I think is, is so like, it was so powerful. And I think especially in the context of like, that it comes in that moment, like their little sort of exchange about the the spy fly is also such a a poignant moment. You know, she goes up there because she wants to like throw the thing over the edge of the boat, you know, which is a very Lyra thing to do. Like, this is a bad thing. I want to get it far away from me. I want to destroy it. And, you know, and Makasta, like I, who, who, like I was saying before we started recording, Makasta, who is rapidly becoming perhaps my favorite character in this entire show, because she is just like all, I mean, I guess I'm just weak for moms just in general, but she's just like, <laughs> like, it's very much like, like this was predictable on many levels, but, yes. <laughs> um, but she's just like, like the capacity for love and empathy that Ma Costa has 
extends even to the spy fly where she's like, look, like it's a, like, it's a cursed thing. Like it's a, it's not, it's not doing bad to you out of its own agency. Like it's not, it's not trying to harm you because it, the thing wants to harm you and therefore deserves to be, you know, cast away. And also that like, you know, like that she sort of, she can she can live within the cognitive dissonance of the mess of Mrs. Coulter's emotions better than Lyra can. Yeah, you know, and the other thing about Malcosta, I think that is that also kind of made me cry in the sort of moment of her reaching out to Lyra is I think like the other thing about, you know, is that like she's lost Billy, right? And like she's, she's missing Billy. And so I also feel like there's just like, like Ma Costa is so thoroughly a mom, right? Like she's yes. just sort of like, yeah. I need a baby yeah. to love and protect. Okay, like you are baby now, yep, baby. Yep. I keep you safe. Other one I couldn't. We're going to get him. You baby. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she's like I need to love a small child. And you are it. <laughs> God, it's so true. It's so true. She's just like, like, like. Oh my God, this the little the little moment moment where when Tony is sneaking out for the night and it cuts to Ma Costa in bed and she's sleeping with Billy's sweater. I, I sweater. was like, oh my God, it broke yeah. my heart. Yeah. But I, I think like, like she, she's like so deeply a mom, right? Like, and, and, and that way of like, and not sort of like, I'm a mom, but like in like, she Liz is so like, she loves her children so much. And I think Lyra, because she had her as a baby, she kind of like, you know, like she, she's one of her, one of her children. Right. And so, um, but I think like what's was there was like such a beautiful moment of like when she's having that conversation about the spy flies with Lyra, where like that is so true that she can even empathize with Mrs. Coulter, who in in so many ways, you know, in so many ways is like the antithesis of Ma Costa. Um, right. but but like she kind of recognizes, you know, she's like, you know, like that's a symbol, like that spy fly shows you how desperate your mother is for you. And she says something, I can't remember the exact line, but she says something like, you know, love of hate. You know, she kind of recognizes like in my, in in Mrs. Coulter, those are the same thing. You know, she is absolutely like that as a mother who is desperate to find her child. And like, it's complicated. She's not just desperate. You know, she's not desperate in the kind of like pure way where Acosta is, where it's just like just love. She just wants Lyra back. But I think she recognizes, you know, kind of intuitively that that kind of like desperation for the child Although sort of like deeply intertwined with everything that Lyra represents to her in terms of her position in the magisterium and her plans and her power and so forth is still partly driven by this really sort of instinctual like mother's drive to find her child. Yeah, like there's a piece of it, you know, there's a piece of the emotional experience of what Mrs. Coulter is going through that Makasa is the only person in Lyra's life that can understand it and explain it to Lyra and yeah. also that it doesn't excuse any of the things that she's doing like that she can that she can say like here's what Mrs. Coulter is feeling and like like you the child and also the victim of all of this horror are only seeing things from your one perspective and that's okay like that's natural and let me let me give you some context for the why behind these things and that's still like that doesn't mean that she's right or 
that she should get to have you mm-hmm. or, or that, that it's this, okay what she or that it's okay too. what she did or that that any of this justifies um the the things that she is doing to get you back like it it's like like all of these contradictory things can be true at once and it's both totally okay that Lyra doesn't get that on an intuitive level both because she's a kid and because she isn't a parent um but but that, you know, but she trusts Ma Costa enough that when she says, like, here's one of the many things that this little box that you're holding in your hand means, you know, like, yes, it is, you know, it means a, a you know, creepy violation of your privacy and <laughs> that she's breaking the law and yeah. that she will stop at nothing and she's willing to use, you know, dangerous, illegal, cursed, you know, flying scarab beetles to track you like like all of all the bad things that this means are true and all the reasons why you're scared of it and want to just throw it to the bottom of the sea are valid and also another thing that it means is love in the only kind of fucked up possessive abusive poisonous way that mrs coulter is capable of expressing and i think that that like i think that distinction is really important yeah, no, and I and I think like the sort of like she's able to sort of like pull out the the sort of like pull out of that mess, you know, a kind of like the only gift she can give to Lyra out of that, which is to say, this thing means that you matter to your mother, however fucked up she is, whatever she's done, you do matter to her, you know, like you you matter so much, and again. Doesn't mean that, like, you know, you should, like, go live with her. Doesn't mean you should forgive her everything. But, like, but but that piece of, like, for for a kid, especially a kid who's been abandoned so many times, who feels like, well, my parents don't give a shit. I don't matter to them. Whatever. Like, mattering is a huge, huge thing, you know? So I Yeah. Think like, that- all she wants is to feel like she's important. Like, exactly. that's yeah. – That is the thing that she has been – like, this whole time, you know, everything that she's been – trying to do to get Lord Asriel's attention, wanting to go with him to the north, wanting him to, you know, to take some kind of interest in her life. Like, all everything about her behavior towards the adults around her and what she wants from them has been shaped by, like, wanting to be important, wanting to be cherished, wanting to be valued because of who she is. And I think that you know, both the Egyptians telling her, like, yeah, you know, we we know Lord Azrael and we have no beef with him and think that he's great. That's not why you matter to us. That's not the reason we know who you are and care about you. Like, that's not – like, you're not only important in who your parents are, you know. Yeah. And to Makasta, it's like, you know, here's – Here's the backstory of who your parents are. And again, also, that's not why you're important. Like, you just, like, on your own merits, you matter, you know? And and I think that's what she's been needing to hear. And that actually reminds me of the point I was starting to make, like, a zillion years ago <laughs> before we started talking about the scene with Makasa. So so um, the arc, to go way back, the other arc that I think that, that Lyra's on, sort of like the other big character arc that is so important, kind of ties into that, which is that um, – I think the other huge thing for Lyra about um, the alethiometer, her being able to get the alethiometer work, working, and I think maybe part of the reason, the other one of the other reasons why it starts working for her is that um, 
she's, you know, finally reached a point where she, this is a community that she is now sort of like willing to think of herself as a part of. You know, she's willing to start thinking in terms of an us, you know, like she's willing to start thinking about like, okay, like, not just like these are the people I'm with, but I might split at any moment and it doesn't matter, but just sort of like, like, I know these people, I know we're all on the same side, you know, like I trust them, they've kind of proven themselves to me, I'm starting to care about them, they care about me. Um, And so she's sort of, I think, starting to think about herself, you know, kind of like as a, as a, as a part of this community or connected to this community. And the thing that the alethiometer gives her is a way to contribute. She's like, she's able, you know, she she is able to sort of provide information to them, like vital information to them and a means to further vital information to them that is helping them also as much as they're helping her. So it's a reciprocal relationship, you know? So like it starts with sort of like, she knows about Mrs. Coulter's plans. She's sort of able to like, to give Benjamin and Tony the information about where to go. And by the way, I love that scene when she catches Tony sneaking out. It was like, oh my God, you know, like yeah. Lyra for never having had a sibling in her life, like takes to being <laughs> a little sister, like a duck to water, you know, like. I will scream and wake up your mom if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, fine, I'll tell you where I'm going. Um, uh, so it's like partly that, but then also that moment when they, when she gets the alethiometer to work and she's able to give them information that they wouldn't otherwise have. And then also the fact that it works means that she can then, you know, guide them. She can keep consulting them. You know, what that means is that she's not just like an out, you know, like a, a burden they've been strapped with. This like girl that they have to protect who's just like bringing problems. She's not a pawn to them. You know, she's not like just like something that they're going to use for something later on. Like she has a place and she has a unique contribution to make. And she is like, and, and I think especially you sort of see in that moment, like at the, um, I forget what they, what do they call it? The, 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 like the gathering. Oh, the, the roping. The roping. That's right. Yeah. The roping. Um, where Lord Foz, you know, like giving the speech about going up north. Um, and what's his fate? I can't remember the other guy's name, you know, sort of like gets up and gives the counter argument. And that moment when sort of Lyra steps out, you know, and is able to sort of speak up and, and sort of be like, you know, I think, I think that's an expression of a moment of like, her being like, hey, look, I'm a part of this too. You know, like I'm a part of, I I have a, I'm a part of the situation and I'm a part of this, you know, like I'm not like one of you yet in the same way, but I'm a part of this sort of like, I'm, I'm a part of this community right now. Um, you know, and she's sort of able to speak her piece and be listened to and, and like persuade everyone. You know, it's like, feels like such a huge transformation or sort of like a huge, the sort of like, that landing at that moment of the episode, at the end of the episode versus where she started, you know, this is a Lyra who is rather than sort of seeing the resistance in the group and being like, well, fuck it, you know, I'm going to run off, you know, and do this on my own like I was planning. She chooses to step up and say like, hey, listen to me, like, you know, like, I think that we should all band together and fight right now because like... I've got skin in the game. You've got skin in the game. We've got this special knowledge. I have this, you know, like this, this like knowledge that can help guide us. We should go do this. And everyone bands, you know, kind of bands together behind her. Um, it's really a sort of moment of like, this is a Lyra who is like now kind of being integrated, um, into something that isn't just about herself. Um, and to which again, like, she can kind of make this really sort of like crucial, like feel like she's like making like a really, really like real contribution. 
Yeah, and like the moment where, like, I love that little scene between Fartacorum and Lord Fa, where he basically says, like, you know, she's like, it's not even just that she has something to contribute. It's like she's the most valuable person. Like, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she'll she'll be more helpful to us than any soldier we have. Like, there's there's no one individual person you know on on this quest with us who can contribute more individually than she can and i think that that like faith in her in a in a big picture sense in terms of the ways that the egyptians kind of exist in in opposition to what we see of the rest of society like one of the biggest differences i think we've seen so far is how they value children you know, for Mrs. Coulter, they're lab rats to her, you know, and and to the magisterium, they're sort of nothing. They're kind of meaningless. They're just like small humans that need to be trained, you know, and educated and molded properly. Right. So they'll be good adults, you know. Yeah, but they're but they don't have any kind of like, you know, like merit on their own. And yeah, yeah. or like any particular significance. <laughs> Right. And, and for, you know, and for Mrs. Coulter, like, Lyra is exceptional only because of the ways that, you know, like of, of Lyra as a thing that belongs to her. And also in a way of sort of like, I think, scratching a little bit at, at some kind of very deep seated issues that she has with Lord Azrael in terms of like, you know, to which of them does Lyra the most belong? You know, like how much of this possessiveness is about sort of scoring points over him. Um, but, but not, not important as like a human being, important as like my mental picture of what it would be like to have a junior version of me that I could sort right. of mold and own. But for the Egyptians, like, it's not just Ma Costa, it's like the entire Egyptian society. You know, all of the Egyptians have sort of sailed in for this all Egyptian conference, you know, on, on the boats to figure out what to do about the kids. And even though there are debates and discussions about what to do about it, like, you know, the, the guy who speaks up, who basically says, like, we're harboring a fugitive and, you know, Lyra is dangerous. That brings up some interesting stuff about like like how leadership decisions are made, magisterium versus Egyptians. Like there's a whole other conversation about like power and democracy that I think is also really interesting. But the piece that everybody agrees on is that the stealing of their children is an objectively horrible thing and that all of those children matter. And the difference is just, do we go to war with the magisterium to get those children back or do we kind of grieve them and make choices to protect the children that we still have, you know, and, and, and what do we do about this kid who is sort of a, a danger magnet? But like, as a society, like the Egyptians see children as human beings, as full human beings. Like, it makes sense why this is the first place that Lyra can come and say, like, I have an idea or I have something to contribute or here is something that I know, you know, and the kind of, it was, it was handled really sort of subtly, but like the sort of slow opening up of her sharing information, you know, the first conversation that she has with Farda Quorum and Lord Fa 
She's like, don't know anything, can't help you, sorry. You yeah, know, and then yeah. and then later in the episode, she's like, okay, well, she mentioned North, you know, sort of like, like, here's the things that I know. She mentioned North, she said this, they're making plans, I think they're gonna take the kids there. And then to Tony, she's like, upper right hand drawer, you know, um, like her <laughs> her sort of slowly like being willing to share more and more of the things that she knows, you know, that she has to contribute. Leading up to that, you know, that scene where she gets, where she sort of makes the final speech, um, to sort of try to like urge them all to, you know, to be on, you know, be on her side and, you know, in this fight. But it's like the, the Egyptians see her as a person because they see children as beings with value and not sort of subjects of an experiment or in the context of, dust versus not dust or as just sort of like you know like tiny grown-ups to mold it's like lyra's a person to them she's like a real person to them and i feel like that is nicely kind of of a piece with all of the other ways in which the egyptians kind of value and uplift the marginalized as opposed to the kind of power elite Part of, I think, what's interesting about it, sort of going back to our conversation from the first episode about the ways in which the Egyptians, even though, I mean, they're not depicted in in the show or the books as being in any way like a quote unquote religious society, but they sort of are, you know, they they represent, you know, all of like all the things that are good about religion and Christianity are sort of exemplified in what they do. And it reminds me of the sort of the biblical context for why it was sort of revolutionary and radical for Jesus to talk so openly about the value of children was because he lived in a society where children had no value. Like you're sort of like, like a, a society where essentially like being old enough to either sire or bear children or do work you know, was kind of how value was determined. And kids were just sort of like, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're another mouth to feed until you're able to sort of contribute to the whole, you know, especially among like the lower and working classes. And so just sort of to say, like, children matter, children are human beings with value, like was, you know, was kind of a radical thing to say in first century Palestine because the religious elites and the sort of upper classes of the time did not take that view. You know, they were kind of like, sort of like, who gives a fuck about children? So it's sort of like another one of those little like, um, the ways in which the things that the Egyptians model and stand for are far more in line with values that are associated with religion than what the actual religious institution in this story is doing. You know, the magisterium is versus the Egyptians in terms of like, okay, you know, like which one of you are doing things that are actually quote unquote Christian? (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The difference between sort of Christianity, you know, in the, as like a, a means to power, you know, religion is a means right. to power versus, like, actual sort of, like, thinking about, like, what does our faith ask us to do for other people, like, socially and, and you know, like, societally and within families and so on. Yeah. <laughs> and, this, and this idea that you, that you don't have to be a religious person to be a moral person, to be a good person, mm, you know, yes, I, I think yes. is also, you know, is a big part of... Philip Pullman's kind of 
lens of the world, which I think is actually like, even for me, like as a person who is religious, like I think this is an important conversation, sort of the ways in which like religious institutions and religious voices have sort of claimed the territory of morality as a thing that belongs exclusively to them while institutionally behaving in wildly immoral and unethical ways. And, and so like, you know, like, yeah, like let's have that conversation, you know, like let's talk about like the corruption of this church bureaucracy up against these people who the church bureaucracy is just shitting on constantly, you know, who are in fact, the only, you know, sort of straightforwardly on the side of right and good and kindness and ethics and loyalty and community of any of the characters that we've that we've seen. I just continue to be really fascinated by the ways in which Egyptian ethics and culture and society versus the rest of the world kind of under the chokehold of the magisterium, like all of the sort of cultural conflicts and and you know contradictions between those two sort of worldviews i think is really fascinating Mm -hmm. yeah i agree and i am like so excited for the witches uh next week oh my god into it witches and bears (laughs) and lin-manuel miranda (laughs) all the things that i love all the things we've been waiting for um uh so what haven't we covered boreal Boreal, yes. Oh, Boreal. <laughs> I, uh, okay, first of all, I just have just to get it out of the way. Um, he's so hot. <laughs> he really is. I yeah. think he is, he is, so, and he, and he, like, he, he looks, he looks so, like, I mean, he, like, he looks, I mean, he looks great in both worlds of clothing, but it was interesting just sort of seeing, like, the, um, the way that he looks so natural in both worlds, I thought yeah. was really interesting. You know, like when he sort of like when he elbows the guy aside and sits down at his computer and just looks like a person who's been using a computer his whole life. And right. that, like it's like all of those like little those like he we got such an interesting little um picture of him as an individual in this episode to sort of expand on our understanding of him as sort of a tool of the magisterium, you know, like it was sort of, it was sort of implied, but not really stated outright in the last episode when he crosses over and he, you know, and it sort of does it in secret, you know, and by himself and come back by himself. And we don't see him really like discussing it with a lot of people, you know, so sort of there's, there's a sort of sense of like, there is kind of a shroud of secrecy around the fact that he can do this, but it wasn't made explicit or textual that that he's sort of gone rogue in yeah, essence. Like that yeah. it is and this that is, it is this, a solo project. Yeah, and this is the first time where we sort of get it textually stated that that whatever he's doing here, he is working as an agent for himself. That there's a kind of yeah. like, you know, that that there's like, there's the Magisterium's machinations, and then there's Mrs. Coulter's machinations, which he's also kind of like, got his hand in. And then there's his, I mean, he's like, he's like the one guy on that side of the story where he kind of has a hand, has a, a sort of, yeah, like a hand in all of these pies, you know? Like, and, well, and, and the other thought- people, like the Magisterium, I think doesn't, it's pretty clear, doesn't 
know the extent to which he's really sort of like working with Mrs. Coulter and knows about her plans. And Mrs. Coulter doesn't know about, you know, I think everything that he's sort of communicating with the Magisterium and like neither the Magisterium nor Mrs. Coulter know about like him crossing over and doing the sort of the, the having the, the investigations done into Grumman and his family now, you know, so like he's really emerging as like a very, very fascinating uh, sort of like spanner in the works that no one knows is there yet. Yeah. No, he totally is. And I think the thing that I like what I, what I really loved about, um, about sort of the way that he was flushed out in this episode was the fact that he is like, like the, the way that it was sort of revealed that he is in his own way, like sort of like he's functionally doing the exact same thing that Mrs. Coulter is doing, where it's like, you're sort of, you're part of the magisterium, you are useful to the magisterium, but you're also using them and their resources for your own kind of side project. You know, like yeah. they're both, like, they, that both of them sort of have a, um, a relationship with the magisterium that is a little bit kind of on the, not necessarily like even on the margins, but just sort of like, but like the magisterium is side eyeing both of them too. You know, like, like we saw Mrs. Coulter, like she's gotten in trouble before, you know, with the magisterium, including from Boreal. Um, and so it was really interesting to see, you know, him kind of getting a slap on the wrist too, for both for failing to sort of rein in Mrs. Coulter and also for just sort of like, like I'm watching you. Like you're not you're not sufficiently behaving like somebody who's completely in lockstep like you're supposed to be, you know. Um and and I don't know if that is sort of if it's a if it's sort of a deliberate choice that the two characters that we sort of see on the fringes of the the magisterium's power structure are a black man and a woman, or if that just kind of like that's just boreal and casting like that's sort of like inadvertent like i don't know um but it but it feels but like the scene of the two of them sort of sitting on the couch um in her apartment knowing what we know of sort of the secret errands they are both working on that the magisterium doesn't know about you know like he sees like so now he knows she has the spy flies um she may or may not know you know that he's sort of what he's doing, but like they're both, you know, they're both sort of doing their own secretive things for their own reasons that are sort of adjacent to, but not necessarily sanctioned by the magisterium, even, even as they continue out in the world to behave as sort of, you know, the magisterium's hammer, you know? So it is, I think the parallels between the two of them are really interesting. Also, of course I continue to ship it, but that's like unrelated. <laughs> Well, they're both so beautiful. And they're both so I, beautiful and and hot messes. Hot messes. I still maintain they do a lot of hate fucking. I oh for sure <laughs> for sure. And honestly, the fact that like every every single sort of like other within the magisterium, particularly like we're we're in that building, every other rep- representative like sort of like high ranking whatever representative of the of the magisterium we've seen so far has been a white man like an older white man i i don't think it's a coincidence that that's like within the magisterium it's all like old white men and then you know so like the kind of like the the people who are 
using the power and resources of the magisterium to their own advantage, you know, um, are Boreal and Mrs. Coulter are not white men, right? Like they're sort of, they're the people who sort of recognize like the way that I can kind of like the, the, the means in this world for me to sort of like have power and be able to do what I want is through the magisterium. So I'm going to sort of like manipulate that to my advantage. And I don't mean that in a, like in a pejorative way necessarily. It's just sort of like, I think, again, it's a kind of interesting way in which very subtly, I think this, this show is dealing with kind of issues of sort of like white patriarchy, basically, you know, like within a world with such a, a pervasive and, and oppressive sort of um, uh, ruling patriarchal, um, you know, sort of like ruling patriarchy, um, what is the the sort of means through which you can come to, to sort of wield these levers and have your sort of autonomy and pursue what you want? And I think that Mrs. Coulter and Boreal are both seem to be characters who sort of recognize, like, I'm going to figure out how to sort of get inside of it and use those levers for myself. And I think um, it's because they're the two, I think you're right, like, it's, they they couldn't actually access that any other way. No, they couldn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like, I don't think, you know, although Mrs. Coulter, at any rate, obviously is doing some, like, straight up evil shit, Boreal is, like, I think a little bit more gray. It's not clear what his motives are you know obviously like he knows what's going on with mrs coulter and he's willing to look the other way but it's sort of not really clear like what he himself is trying to pursue but i think like within this world is sort of one of those things where it's like at least understandable right like makes total sense if you look around that world and you sort of are making calculations like how do i do this like well you know they figured it out (laughs) Like, very, like, peak Slytherin, you know? Oh, yeah. High-functioning Slytherin characters. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and you know, and, of course, one of them has a snake demon, so. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but, uh, yeah, so I think, I think, I do think it's not a coincidence. Um, I think it's maybe even, I you know, the the master um, Jordan of Jordan College, who is also, of course, a black man, and I think he's, of the kind of like named speaking Jordan College faculty characters we see, he's the only black man. That one I, I is like a little less clear that that's like a deliberate choice versus just sort of like like this this guy is the best guy for the role kind of thing. But I think you know in a way like there's a sort of uh, you know again like regardless like this is. Assuming that this is a world that, that, you know, where racism exists in a way that isn't somehow in some way analogous to our own. Like, once again, this is a kind of character where, like, very clearly, like, he, he, he's figured out that the way that you get to carve out for yourself a piece of this world where you can pursue the things that you want to pursue, you can have some degree of autonomy, um, and safety you know, is kind of through these established um, structures, right? And of course, the, the the mistake that the master makes that becomes, that kind of comes home to roost, like the mistake he's been making all along, but that, that he doesn't really realize is a mistake is that he assumed that, you know, that the magisterium recognized scholastic sanctuary as this like totally, cir- you know, circumspect, like absolute kind of like enshrined principle the way that he does. And of course, the kind of like thing that gets driven home in this episode is that 
that no, in fact, the, you know, as far as the magisterium is concerned, like, this is something that we kind of let you have, you know, like, as long as you play, as long as you kind of, like, do sort of what you're supposed to do. And, like, if you're going to have, like, kind of heretical conversations, you sort of at least keep it quiet and, like, don't really do anything about it. But the moment you step out of line, we will come in and remind you, like, you only get scholastic sanctuary as long as we feel like letting you have it. And I loved the, um, the little, the conversation between the master and Mrs. Coulter when she comes to like raid the college where, you know, where first of all, she basically like marches in, you know, with her, with her little army of stormtroopers and basically is like, like, find me something, you know, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. go, go get something that I can use to shut this place down. Like go, go find me something that I can use to sort of manipulate the circumstances to do what I'm going to do anyway. But then when, you know, when the two of them are are talking, there is more than zero merit to her argument about what Scholastic Sanctuary actually is, where she basically is like, this is just enshrined privilege. Like, this is just, like, this is just sort of the, you know, like, old, old dead white dudes and their, you know, like, things that they have, like, like her perspective on it as being like, the way I've seen this used in the world is just to sort of preserve dead antiquated ideas and treat them like they continue to be gospel. Um, I like it was, it was a, it was an interesting little slice into kind of, you know, what, what she perceives this institution to be. Yeah. She is also part of an institution which is doing it, like that's also what the magisterium is doing. So it's like, it's not like she's, like the the narrative's not on her side there. Yeah, yeah. But it is interesting that like we have heard about but not seen any women scholars. So we and don't they are actually still treated they're sort of they're still looked down upon, we're told. They're sort of right. like, eh, they're a little bit weird, you know, no one really takes them seriously as right. women or as scholars. Like she's not wrong. Like she's she's a hypocrite, you know, because she's there as a representative of uh this kind of like this 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 um organization that is like kind of represents the ultimate sort of power at least if not privilege but she is correct you know this sort of like to point out the inherent misogyny that still kind of like is at the heart of this inst- this institution you know like she's not allowed to be a member right right one of the things that they're really doing like really leaning on in this adaptation of it as opposed to the book like we were sort of talking before about like you know, getting sort of a picture of her interior life that the book doesn't really give you. Um, you know, it's clear that one really crucial piece of that is the way in which, you know, her, her ability to live the life that she wants to live there, that she like to be the person that she might in her youth have wanted to be. Um, has been constrained by men and patriarchy at every turn. You know, I mean, even to the point of like, the reason her child is taken is because of male shame. It's because of, of Edward Coulter. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is, it is because, uh, because Lyra represents essentially her sort of status as like a quote unquote fallen woman. And the reason that she is sort of the, you know, has had to kind of, 
claw her way back up the ladder and holds on so tightly to the power that she has within the magisterium is because she was a total outcast, you know, and Asriel was too, but Asriel, but it didn't, it didn't punish him in the same way. Like he, you know, it's like he lost his, like he lost his land and his money and his property, but he didn't lose his status at the college. He's just like, he was always a weirdo and he remains the exact same kind of weirdo right. he was, but he didn't actually lose anything. Oh no, wait, he did lose his, did he lose his estate? He lost something. Anyway. Yeah, he, he, yeah, he lost, he like, he lost his money in his estates, but he still gets to have the life that he wants. Like he gets That's to true. sort of be yeah, yeah. a freewheeling explorer and, and so the life that he carved out for himself, you know, in the wake of this terrible thing that happened and this terrible loss, like allowed him a degree of freedom that is only possible because he is a man. And, and Mrs. Coulter, who suffered the same magnitude of loss, was trapped within patriarchy when that happened and was totally at the mercy of like all only men made these decisions, you know, like, like she wasn't allowed to keep her baby because Lyra was too much, you know, visibly Lord Asriel's child and not Edward Coulter's child and male ego and male patriarchal control and, and power shit basically is the reason why she couldn't just be like, so I'm in love with somebody else. Let's get an amicable divorce and I'm going to marry this guy. Yeah. And then Azrael kills him. Because, right. And then it's like a whole know, fucking male yeah. duel bullshit. You yeah. Know? And then the magisterium decides, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your baby away and put it in like shove your shame in a nunnery, you know, and like, and, uh, and take away your lover's money. And he's going to, you know what I mean? Like, she's just sort of like, right. She's like left there with nothing, having not gotten to make any decision in any of this. <laughs> right. She's just standing there while like, okay, like now she's a widow, but even that, like even, even no longer having a husband, she can't like have like, like her lover and her child are both taken away from her as her husband. You know, like she's, yeah, she gets nothing. She gets to keep nothing. And, um, and again, like that doesn't excuse or justify who she became and the things that she's done, but it explains why she feels the way she feels about these, masculine patriarchal entities of power and her perception that they are all sort of largely bullshit, you know? And I think yeah, like, yeah. like in the, um, there was a scene in the, in the movie, in the, in the Nicole Kidman movie that I, that I rewatched before the pilots. I, I watched a lot of the Mrs. Coulter Lyra scenes, partly for plot reasons and partly, you know, for milf trash reasons but um <laughs> uh but she but there's a conversation that lyra and mrs coulter have in that one when they're on the airship um sailing back towards london and um and lyra asks mrs coulter you know what's what is the magisterium and and she tells her you know the magisterium is what people need some people are not like intelligent or resourceful enough to make their own decisions. And the magisterium exists to be the entity that tells them what to do, you know, in a loving way, like people would be unsafe out in the world without the magisterium to tell them what to do. And so what we do is, you know, so, but, but very much sort of speaking as like a creature who is like deeply, deeply embedded into that mindset, you know, like that she believes that both the magisterium as an entity and her as sort of a, you know, a, a tool of it 
are what is like best for the world. You know, so she's, she's like, she's very much like she's in the cult, right? You know, and, and this Mrs. Coulter, we don't see any of that at all. Like we don't see anything of her sort of personal individual beliefs. It's sort of like, this is an institution that like royally fucked her over and she's figured out a way to kind of climb up the ladder high enough that she can, you know, in exchange for them using her, she can also use them right back. And she gets back the sort of power and societal status that she lost, but they're a tool to her as much as she is to them. And it isn't because she necessarily values or believes the things that they're sort of putting out there in the world. And so I think that this Mrs. Coulter, who's kind of like, you know, a a free agent who's made some kind of strategic trades, I'll give you this if you give me this, as a, you know, like, as opposed to somebody who is like really a creature of the magisterium's sort of, you know, mindset. Like, I think it is like, it's a way more messy and complicated portrait of sort of like, how women have to operate inside these male institutions, but it makes sense why she, you know, like she sort of equates the college that we're sort of coded to see as like, well, the college is the good guys. Like we like these characters. And to Mrs. Coulter, she's just like, nope, you are another group of all men where women are second class citizens and men make all of the decisions. And like, you're, you know, you're just as bad. And it's like, that is also actually a perspective that is worth considering you know like like, there's truth in that too yeah she's not entirely wrong Mm -hmm. i am interested you know kind of given this version of mrs coulter i'm very interested when we get to the part of the story where we like see her plan in action and we like know what it is because i think the the plan and and i won't i won't spoil anything more but like the the what she's doing in the north with the children is really deeply sort of uh, bound up with, um, you know, theology and, and at least in the books, her sort of like her, her, her um, uh, devotion, you know, like her sort of like true belief. Um, And I think so like, that's, that's like enough of the plot in the later parts of this story, when we get up there and find out what she's doing and why she's doing it. And then, you know, decisions she makes later that I, I feel like they, you know, I, I, I kind of can't see how they would have gotten, would have entirely eliminated the part of Mrs. Coulter. That is kind of a true believer. And at least, at least in some version of the magisterium's doctrines. Um, So I'm very curious to see kind of like, the version of the, the this this adaptation's version of the explanations for her actions with regard to that stuff. Um, but I do agree that we are sort of like the way that they're sort of laying out her character so far is far more focused on like here here are the things that psychologically drive Mrs. Coulter and that and like really very much that like she gets out of this relationship with the magisterium that is kind of like a little bit adversarial um, and much less sort of like she is like, she is like personified the perfect magisterium believer. You know what I mean? Um, So yeah. So I'll be, I'm, I'm very interested in kind of like the way that that dynamic plays out further down the line. Yeah, definitely. Cause I do feel like there is like, 
we haven't seen much yet of like of sort of what her personal sort of theology and beliefs are. What we've seen so far is her kind of finding ways to sort of manipulate individuals and institutions for sort of like, yeah, for kind of for purposes of her own that at the moment are sort of unclear. Yeah. We do know that that she shares the same sort of fixation on understanding dust that Lord Asriel does and that there's danger in her digging too deeply into that also. Yeah. Like a, a parallel between her and Asriel in terms of just sort of like, you know, they're kind of explorer brains. You get an interesting picture in a lot of different little tiny subtle ways, I think, in this episode of like – like the person that she could have been, like the person that she almost was, you know, and and it's in everything from, you know, the story of how she lost Lyra to the fact that she and who she is now and who her demon is don't line up anymore. And um, you know, and and the you know, the relationship between her and Azrael and, and like and how, you know, like in a different society that didn't put women in into sort of boxes to be controlled where she could have just married the guy that she fell in love with and they could have gone off to be explorers together you know like yeah. everyone's lives would have been different and she wouldn't have become the person that she became yeah and i do think that there's that with i think we have a hint about how they're going to kind of deal with that when um ma costa says you know the sort of like the shame of of having her infidelity exposed and having had a child, you know, sort of like a bastard child and the way that that, you know, sort of like uh, sort of destroyed her life, not just in terms of like losing her husband, et cetera, but then also just like, like, you know, like stripped her of everything, you know, that she was a kind of like a, a scarlet, you know, like. Like Hester Prynne, you know, like she had to wear a scarlet letter for a while and she lost all the status. Um, so there's, and she's, Ma Costa says, like, that kind of explains how, you know, everything about who she became, who she's become since. And I think, you know, that there's a kind of like, on the one level, you can see, like, well, you know, in that kind of situation, if you're a person who has been utterly sort of shamed and, and, uh, made a pariah because of these sort of, these like social, you know, misdeeds is kind of like, you know, like adultery and like all you've done, all these things you're not supposed to do. Well, how do you claw your way back into um, respectability and into kind of like a place within this, this like really sort of like uh, religiously didactic society? And like one obvious answer is like you then become the greatest dogmatist for that religion mm -hmm. right like you the way that you you like everything after that is like you know you like prostrate yourself and you and you do everything to sort of like say like yes that was wrong and evil and bad you know and then you just kind of like dedicate yourself absolutely to um to upholding the dogma and the the sort of like uh the the rightness of that moral system. So you can kind of see how like she would go, how, how that experience would kind of kick her into sort of being like, well, in order to sort of like 
re reinstitute myself, you know, to rehabilitate myself, I have to like sort of align myself entirely with the magisterium, like everything they believe I believed kind of like an extreme degree. And you can see how that might like, you know, that way with, 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 um, you know, Mrs. Coulter that we've talked about where you can't like, you can't separate her mom feelings from her sort of like Mrs. Coulter machinations, you know, mm-hmm. it's about like, her daughter, and it's also about power. I think in the same way, like, you know, potentially one sort of piece of this is that you can't, like, like her, her sort of, like, dedicating herself so utterly to the magisterium and being an agent for it, um, you kind of can't separate the part of that that is utterly uh, uh, strategic, utterly, mm-hmm. pr- like, ruthlessly pragmatic um from the part where like in order like you she would have to immerse herself so deeply in it that it would also be real so it's like simultaneously cynical and completely like those beliefs are completely real you know what i mean um like i feel like she's the kind of character who can hold that sort of like cognitive like her entire life is cognitive dissonance you know yeah. like the sort of like the her relationship with her demon is like cognitive dissonance you know, like literalized, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so, so like that, a piece of that, I feel like that could be a part of it where it's sort of like she had to believe so fervently in this thing for the, the sort of like pragmatic, like the ruthlessly practical reason of sort of like clawing herself back up in society that like eventually it's just like, that's what you believe. Um, but then I sort of also wonder if, you know, like, the issue of shame, right? Like so much of this is about like shame for her about, and especially thinking about like, again, going back to that way that sort of like children don't attract dust, but adults attract dust. Right, right. It happens at puberty, right? And the way that that, you know, in that first episode, the mention of Adam and Eve in the garden. So the ways that sort of dust is alive in line with like the moment when you, when you sort of cross over into knowingness. When you know, when you have knowledge, when you have knowledge of life and death, of sexuality, of good and evil, you know, when you kind of like go from innocence into experience, that's the moment when dust comes to you. You know, if you think about like her sh- her shame was falling in love and giving into passion and to love, and it was ultimately sexual, right? It was about, it was about a sexual indiscretion is really the thing that ultimately, that, you know, kind of brought her down. Um... Then, you know, and you think about all the ways that like within magisterium um, sort of dogma or theology, dust is tied to shame, knowledge, sexuality, potential, you know, like all these Mm -hmm. things. You could see how like these things, even as like it could simultaneously be like this is how she gets and wields power in this world. And if she has power, then no one could hurt her again. You know what I mean? And also at the same time – like the ways that the kind of the magisterium teachings have sort of metastasized with her own trauma and shame and um and self-loathing, you know, and sort of horror at the thing that she did and what resulted that it kind of turns into this whole project involving children and dust and, you know, like whatever fucked up thing she's doing in the North <laughs> with the guillotine. That's a good point. I mean, I feel like it's a – like – in some ways, I think, you know, the the sort of – I hesitate to use the word sort of the tragedy of Mrs. Coulter because that does sort of imply a degree of victimhood that I think is a 
complicated thing to posit, but I do well, think that, like, like, maybe it's like more like a Greek tragedy where yeah. it's like the tragedy is driven by hubris, which is always sort yeah, of like the, that's the true. like fatal flaw. It's not like, oh no, the universe has been mean to you. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you had it coming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause I do, cause I do feel like the thing that is, that is, I think, tragic in, in that sort of sense about who she is, is, is the ways in which, you know, like she, she is a monster who is entirely a creature of this society. You know, like yeah. like all of everything terrible about who she is was preventable, and and the you know and the the magisterium is both the reason that she became a monster and the reason that she like the force that created her sort of turned her against her will into this creature and is also the thing that makes her continue with, with full knowledge and, and foresight and agency and choice to continue to be a monster now, you know, it's like, like both of those things are true simultaneously. Like there are, there are pieces of how she became who she became that were things that were done to her that were not her fault and not her choice and the magisterium and their repressive patriarchal, you know, monstrous sort of beliefs and teachings and chokehold on society are why that happened. And also the things that she is choosing to do now are, are sort of, in line with that same philosophy. And those things are things of which she's very much not a victim. Those are things that she's doing deliberately. But I do think that it is interesting. Like, I just, like the way those things kind of, you know, exist, like just the the complexity of who she is as a character in this version of the story, like the way that those things kind of exist side by side, I think is really interesting. You know, like the way that she is like, She's both a, uh, you know, a victim of and a perpetrator of patriarchy in the way that many women of privilege are. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and I think that's really Particularly important. Particularly women who identify with the patriarchy mm-hmm. and with the, the sort of, uh, the, the establishment. Yeah. Like the power that she has comes from the magisterium. So, so anyone who goes against the magisterium is, you know, a threat to her power, even if, like, you know, even if they are doing so for reasons that ultimately, like, I mean, you know, it's like women sort of fighting against their own liberation because it would mean them losing an element of the privilege and power that they possess is like a tale as old as time. Oh, yeah. You know, totally. Um, <laughs> And so I just, I think that's a, I think it's a particularly fascinating tack to take with this character, you know, is like sort of the ways in which she is both um, more, like more understandable in terms of like how she became who she became and also that much more terrifying because she's allowed herself, like she's given herself the ability to sort of switch those pieces of her off. You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, reading her as kind of like an avatar of the evil that results when women sort of embrace the patriarchy for their own advantage rather than fighting it, I think is like very, very kind of like spot on what this uh, adaptation is doing with her. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what makes it, I think, a really 
like a really vital and necessary conversation. I agree. Yeah. Especially, I think, in the context of like religious institutions and the confluence of, you know, sort of religion as hammer that political institutions and sort of social institutions wield, you know, strategically, you know, it's sort of like, uh, um, Every Republican woman that came out in support of Brett Kavanaugh to discredit Christine Blasey Ford, like that kind of thing, where it's sort of like, okay, the power that I have accrued would be lost or diminished if I risk that to protect or to sort of to push for other women who don't have my power and prestige to be treated better, you know? So I'm going to just sort of keep doing what I'm doing and stay on the right side of the power elite, you know? And if that sucks for you, well, then you should have made the choices that I made, you know? Um, So I just, I think it's a really, it's a much more contemporary and messy and complicated look at her that also doesn't like, doesn't diminish or excuse the fact that she is a villain. It just gives us a way more, I think, like kind of fresh and contemporary and therefore (laughs) terrifying portrait of the kind of villain that she is. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) To use an old fandom term, um, they don't whoopify her. Like they don't make her a whoopee, you know, or a sort of like, (laughs) oh, you know, poor sad, sad person, like all the bad things happen. So that's why you feel bad and you do bad things. All poor, bad, bad. You know, I sort of like, wow, you've had a fucked up life. And uh, because of that, you've done some really fucked up shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But like, but there are also people in this world who've had, you know, like really difficult lives and bad things have happened to them and they don't make those decisions. So Mm -hmm. like, it's still, still a a choice that you're making every day to be who you are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, cool. So, yes, this was an amazing episode. Like, this show just keeps getting better and better. I, I'm, i like, obsessed. <laughs> oh, so good. <laughs> and so next good. week, bears and witches and Lin-Manuel Miranda. So many good things. Except all the things. Except that we will not be back next week. Uh, because next week is American Thanksgiving. And um, you have, like... You have house guests coming. Um, yes. You have your girlfriend coming. Yes, from- my girlfriend will be here from England. Ah! Very exciting. So we're not going to we're not going to cut into Claire's girlfriend time uh, <laughs> to record. So we will not have a new episode next week. Um, but I think the week after we'll come back and we'll cover both episodes uh, then. So we'll have like a double a double episode coming up in two weeks. Um, uh, but. And then it'll be very exciting, and we'll have so much to talk about. Oh, my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Cannot wait. Okay. Thanks, everybody. We will be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye.